0: So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on our panel, we have Mark Erickson. Hey there. Josh Adams. Hi. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Bill Paragoy. Bill,
1: do you want to say hi? Sure, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Do you want to give us just a brief
1: introduction, who you are, why you're famous, all that stuff? Uh, I'm sure I'm very famous, but anyway, here goes. I have a kind of diverse background. I did many, many years of hardware design. I was designing computer chips for many years, kind of gravitated more towards the software process tool side of things and it really got into Ruby from that because I found it just to be a great scripting environment and also a more powerful language than something like Perl. From there I, you know, moved actually fully into the software world. I uh, spent some time at Constant Contact doing uh, working on a big Ruby project and over that time I discovered the first Elixir book from Dave Thomas and was fascinated by Elixir, didn't completely understand the concepts, but really thought it was a cool thing and wanted to know more about it. About a year ago, I took a job with the NAR company. We're a consulting firm out of Boston doing uh, consulting for various clients. A lot of the work's in Ruby, but we have a few Elixir projects. And I had the pleasure of being put on an Elixir project working for the Boston MBTA. They have a really cool, small entrepreneurial group that's doing all the new software for the MBTA in Elixir. So I spent about nine months working on their website, which is really cool. And then about three months ago, I transferred to a new project where I'm working for a company called Tradehounds, and we're building a social media platform for construction workers and other craftspeople. It's kind of an Instagram for that sort of thing.
2: That sounds cool. Yeah, it's been fun. So I had to look it up. The MBTA, I think, is this the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority?
1: Yeah, it's basically our mass transit organization, which you think of as being an old, crusty, using 40 year old technology kind of group. And it is in a lot of ways, but they built this small group that's building out new features in Elixir with agile technologies. And we're getting stuff done. We got stuff done really fast there. So it's been fun.
2: Nice. You mentioned you had this uh, hardware background. I'm just curious if you'd had a chance to at least look at Nerves as a, something that you'd be interested in.
1: I looked at it a little bit. I have a whole pile of Raspberry Pis waiting for some fancy Gen server or Nerves project. But of course, they're sitting there gathering dust while I do other things. But I do have an interest in going into that, but haven't done anything more than peruse the top-level docs.
0: Nice. Very cool. Well, yeah, we, we brought you on to talk about basically deploying Elixir apps. But it sounds like, as we were getting ready to start the show, that getting into Elixir might be a little bit more interesting way of of hitting this and then we can talk about the deployment as part of that. Um, yeah, that sounds good. So, so what was your experience getting into Elixir?
1: Well, my experience, I had a pretty easy slide into Elixir when I was working for the MBTA. That's a larger project, you know, a lot, a lot of engineers and they had the ability to onboard me pretty slowly to Elixir. I had some Elixir experience, but hadn't written code for pay yet. And, you know, being a larger project, they could, you know, throw out small features and give me bigger features as time went on. So I got a really good idea of how to write Elixir features, how to structure code, how to build Elixir data structures, and got really awesome code review, which grew me as an engineer quite a bit. And a lot of my MPEX talk was about that, about that experience of learning to write code in better ways, more Elixir way. So that was a really nice onboard for me.
0: Where do you think you would have run into trouble if you hadn't had that kind of
1: I think coming from an OOP kind of background, you know, how do you organize code? Because code is just a, an elixir. It's just a, a bunch of modules with functions in them. How do you organize those functions in a way that makes them make sense to somebody else? And the whole idea of organize them around, around data types. You have a data type that has some structure associated with it, and you define all the functions that use that structure in that module. And you know, kind of build your thing up that way. So it's sort of like objects, but not really objects. It's just data with functions that operate on that data. And that really helped me a lot because before it was like eh, it could go over here, it could go over here, and I got really clear ideas on where code goes from that. Yeah. Also, you mentioned
3: uh, getting code reviews, and like that—that that to me is just such a such a good way to learn
1: something new fast, and like get to skip a lot of the hurdles. Yeah, the MBTA is uh, lucky to have a lead a lead engineer there that is very picky about code reviews to the point of annoying me at times. But in the end, he's always right, of course. We're not always, people aren't always right. But he, he was a really good guy and his code reviews were great. They were detailed. And every time he read my code, I learned a lot and said, oh, that's why I do it that way. So I was really, really happy to have that.
2: I'm just that's curious, my... as someone who I give code reviews as well, like from the receiver, like a like the Elixir Jr. kind of perspective, what makes for giving a good code review? Like how, what, like as the receiver of it, what makes a good code review?
1: I think it's really the combination of explaining, here's why I wouldn't structure it that way. And here's a little example of how I might structure it, with, structure it without giving me the answer. Don't write the code for me, mm-hmm. but give me an idea. Here's the reason I'd like you to do it differently. Here's a general direction. Go off and do that. And that's really helpful. It may take more iterations than just saying, do it this way. But you grow the engineer a lot quicker that way than just saying, here's the answer. Making mistakes as you go along is really a good thing.
3: Yeah, I like that. The way I go about that is I give the person I'm reviewing, I give them some sample code, but it doesn't work at all. And that way, way they can't use my sample code because it's got all the bugs. So they have to learn the stuff.
1: I do that all the time, but it's not on purpose. I think it's working. (laughs) I'm like, hey, this doesn't work. (laughs) I might have been joking.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've been there too. So do you think it helped that it was such a large project? Or would it have been easier to pick up on a smaller project?
1: I think the fact that it was a fairly large project and had well, had a lot of structure to it. We had a really good agile process. So it was easy to pick tickets that were well-defined versus on a smaller project that may have been moving at a higher velocity tickets would have been less defined and I would have been struggling with two things at once. One, trying to define what do they really want here? Second, how do I do this in this brand new language today?
0: Right. So, I mean, we have a little bit of information here about deployment and we've talked about deployment and, uh, distillery and some of the tools that you use for for some of this stuff. But what I'm curious about is in your particular case, you were deploying to AWS and, and ECS. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that? Because it seems like a lot of ta- a lot of times we're talking about deploying to like some virtual server system or maybe to Heroku where it's just a Git push. And it seems like this is a little bit more involved.
1: Yeah, this was kind of a wild ride for me. We really wanted to deploy to AWS because we wanted to we wanted to just get there early. We knew we'd have to go there eventually. That Heroku wasn't going to be enough long term, so we just bit the bullet and went for it. And none of us had ever deployed deployed an Elixir Phoenix app before. And I happened upon and I also had very little experience with AWS. I had played with AWS, never done anything with uh, containers on AWS. So there was thousands of new things I was learning in basically one week. And I happened upon this really good guy, which we should probably link to in the show notes, someone named Joachim Madraz, probably pronouncing that name all wrong, had this really great, great guy that I followed. And it went from ground zero working up to, let's first build your app. Let's first get it running in production mode. Make sure you, know, you can set up all the configs to run in production mode it runs. Let's take that production app and connect it to an external database on RDS. Make sure that works then let's mm-hmm. Dockerize it, make sure that works. And then finally getting to the point where once you're at Dockerize running locally under Docker, setting up the AWS infrastructure and pushing to that. So there's a lot going on there, but by breaking it down into those discrete pieces, you could actually debug the problems when they came up. And there were many problems. I like it. Yeah, I, I really was was a lifesaver having Joachim's work to go off of because it would have taken me weeks instead of like three days to get this done.
2: Well, yeah,
0: reminds it reminds
3: me
1: comprehensive gut.
0: yeah my wife and I watched the Martian a couple nights ago and together with you know just evening together and uh, it was interesting because at the end of the movie Mark Watney character from the Martian he basically said yeah what you wind up doing is just solving one problem at a time
1: exactly and that's the key if you try to solve multiples at one time you may solve it but you won't really know how you did it because you'll change a variable and things will break again we're building that base and keep building upon it is the way to get things done.
2: Yeah, I've been d- just looking at this uh, link to this article for guide uh, to deploying Elixir Phoenix apps to AWS ECS. This is the one you're talking about from Joachim, Right. I think it's... Uh, this is a really comprehensive... I wish I'd seen this a long time ago.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's really beautiful. It's just, it just was a beautiful thing because it not just it gave me all the directions for how to do it, but by doing it step by step, I understood the pieces fairly well. And then when something broke, I was debugging a small piece versus a big piece. Mm -hmm.
2: And I noticed that in this guide, um, they're talking about setting up as an umbrella project, using like separating the web interface from the business logic interface. At least that's, I think that's how I read it. I was just wondering if that's how you guys have your project set up as an umbrella or if it's a single Phoenix app or how do you have it?
1: I have a single Phoenix app for this Tradehounds project. Previously at the MBTA, we had a very large umbrella project where the website itself probably was an umbrella of seven or eight different applications. Mm. And that was a much bigger application. This was fairly small, it's it's, it's not tiny, but it's a fairly small crud app, and it seemed overkill to break that into umbrellas at this point. Yeah. But I did find adapting from the umbrella to a smaller non-umbrella was very easy with this guide. I think Mm -hmm. there was one change in the Docker file. So is
2: there anything that you learned along the way that surprised you? Like, it sounds like you were learning a lot of different technologies as you went through this. Like, is there any like, kind of like, I don't know, uh, big, big ahas or anything like that that you came across?
1: I think the big aha for me was the fact that, you know, I hadn't deployed anything that was non, that was a compiled language in a long time since old C, C++ days. And understanding that you could build this container you know, to build using distillery, you need everything, you need Elixir, Erlang, and so forth to build. But then when you actually deploy, you can deploy it from a much smaller container just containing Alpine and the, you know, the output of distillery. So it was kind of cool to see that I could build this giant thing which had all these dependencies that weren't needed for running it and get rid of those before I actually deployed the real thing. So the package you're deploying is tiny and any potential security holes from all that extra software go away. So that was kind of the big aha moment I had. Like, wow, you don't have to have all that stuff around.
2: Yeah, that is really neat. Um, I do like how the, the Distillery 2.0 guide and the Docker file is set up with that two-stage process. And you end up with this really tiny Alpine uh, dis, you know, d- deliverable. I think that's, that's a great pattern.
1: Yep.
2: Do you want to walk us through the basic structure of your MPEX talk?
1: Uh, yeah, I was talking on that talk about using higher order functions. That's something you get used to when you're working in an object-oriented language of using duct typing and have classes that use some sort of inheritance or something to reuse to reuse data, where in the uh, Elixir world, you want to pass around functions. So the whole idea was I had this one task I had to do with, that was very similar but you had to do it multiple times. And the data types I was operating were were slightly different for each one. So to do that, I ended up defining one piece of code that actually did the the process end to end of the transformation I was trying to make. And then I passed in the data, the functions operating the different data types in different areas. So it was a, a way to reuse a lot of code and just have very small functions that did the access to the individual data structures for each different type of data. And that had creative implications for doing tests as well because of course with tests, you can do sort of you know, what you consider mocking in other languages by passing in a very trivial function, test the algorithm's a trivial function and be done with testing there.
2: That's actually a pattern I enjoy using as well for building systems that talk to external services. I like the idea of instead of using like a mocking library, I like having like a function that can kind of direct it to go. Oh well, because of the data, I know that this is going to my test interface, and because of the data, I know this is going to my live interface, and I can say, well, in test mode, we're always going to make it always go to the test interface. But the idea, I guess, that I was uh, that I really enjoyed about it is that it allowed me to have test data and a test interface in a production environment, so I could create a customer uh, that is a you know test mode customer. And they could be actively hitting these external, these mocked out services in a production setting. And I really like that because it let me have all the canned responses I wanted. If I wanted to emulate that uh, a connection fails, or a DNS lookup fails, or that I'm getting bad data in response, you know, I could, I could uh, simulate all of that. So yeah, I love those. Uh, just the, Really, it's just with higher order functions and just kind of swapping out where they point.
1: Yeah, it's really really nice. I'm doing that right now. I have a gen stage where I'm doing some batch processing of photos. And at the very top level, when I pass state into my gen gen server slash gen stage, I pass in the function that says, "Here's what I want to do with this with this batch processor." And when I'm testing it, I pass in something that basically does nothing. It just does a short sleep or something simple like that. When I'm running the real application, I pass in this real function that does very complex uh, image image processing, uploading to S3 and all sorts of things like that. And it's very nice to be able to test the GenStage functionality outside of the testing of the actual big thing I'm doing with GenStage. So I'm pretty new. What is GenStage? GenStage is pretty awesome. GenStage is is kind of, a, it's not in Elixir proper yet. It's kind of a superset of GenServer, which GenServer allows you to spin up a process and send messages to it modify state, get things back. Uh, GenStage allows you to take multiple GenServer type things and link them together to process data in a pipeline. So you can have one consumer that asks for data from the next stage and you can say, give me no more than this much at a time. The producer will send data as they have it back and all the handshaking and the back pressure is done automatically through GenStage. You just write the functions, Connect it, tell it very simply, here's the maximum data I can take at a time. And I'm using that a lot for, I'm, I have like one, my, my producer is basically a queue and my consumer is this processor that actually processes photos. That
0: sounds awesome.
1: It's really cool because all that, all the corner cases you'd run into in dealing with back pressure and things like that are handled automatically. And you just write the real logic and leave GenStage to do the hard stuff.
0: Nice, yeah. I can definitely see where that's helpful because I mean, I've set things up with queuing before, primarily in Ruby on Rails. And yeah, you you have to manage the pipeline on your own. And so it's, oh, go do a whole bunch of these and then do a whole bunch of those. And you have different workers that do different parts of the process, but you've got to manage the process of passing it on to the next stage.
1: Yeah, and the really cool thing is you can make this as many stages you want and do fairly complex things. So you have some service out there you want to upload mm-hmm. to, but it has some rate limiting on it. You can only upload so many per minute. Mm-hmm. You, could, you can set up a service that has that kind of constraint on it and say, don't give me more than this much because I know the person I'm talking to can't take that much. Right. And that can all be handled behind the scenes versus the funny handshaking with the third party service.
2: Yeah, we, uh, I've used that pattern before and I really do like that. Um, like it's a situation I had was like, yeah, the first stage was kind of the cue just manage the queue. And then you had worker pool. And so we had this situation where we were talking to an external service and they like for one of our requests, it could take like six to seven seconds for them to respond. And so we were just trying to rate limit ourselves. And so that we weren't just like, when we do a batch job, we don't just flood them with all this traffic and they just fall over. So it was more of a, you know, we're going to create uh, have our queue, so we, we can just fire up all these, you know, batch jobs, and they throw all this work into the queue. And then you have, like, we say, well, we want six uh, active workers, and they're just pulling the day And we just set that one up where, you know, you you mentioned Bill how you can, uh, they can say, well, only give me this much at a time. In that case, I just said, we'll just take one at a time because each one is so expensive in time to process. So it's just pull one out and then send the requests out.
1: And that's what I'm doing right now for my image processing processor. I'm just taking one at a time right now. But the cool thing about using GenStage is if I decide, you know, I'm getting more processing than I need on this one node, I can spin up multiple versions of this processor and have them run in parallel. And those things are not using much CPU because they're mostly talking to external external services. So like could probably spin up, you know, multiples on one node and if i need more processing power it's really a one-liner in my code right now to spin up another one
3: awesome yeah and then that sort of thing is when elixir feels very powerful the actual infrastructure around
1: otp things yeah i think that's that's one of those talks i have a lot is you know why would i choose elixir over rails because we work in a company with a lot of rails programmers and you know rails is great probably easier to bring up a this kind of api in rails versus elixir but I think where the power of Elixir comes in is when you start diving into OTP and just need the raw speed of Elixir. The so OTP, I think, is the game changer when you start playing with Elixir.
0: Well, and the Ruby ecosystem a lot more mature. And so, you know, we're starting to get there, you know, with Elixir. I feel like a lot of the things that, you know, I don't miss as much stuff from Ruby when I'm working on it as I did uh, a couple of years ago when I tried it.
1: Yeah, that was one of my bigger fears starting this project, this newer one in Elixir, was what libraries I don't know I need yet, but I'll need and be sorry I don't have. And so far, I haven't come across that. You know, a lot of my work is communicating with uh, AWS, and there are pretty good ex-AWS libraries out there. The thing I'm finding is they're not as documented as well as the Ruby ones, so I'll occasionally find myself going back reading Ruby documentation for their Elixir <laughs> AWS library. And translating that into the same function calls on the Elixir side. And that's been very useful. So I thank the Ruby community for their awesome documentation.
3: Interesting. Have you used GenStage for anything other than the image processing system?
1: That's all I've done so far. It was used at the MBTA for some fairly complex stuff. I wasn't directly involved in those projects. But they did some really cool stuff where they're doing predictions for uh, subway and bus lines and they grab data from many, many sources. There's third-party prediction sources, our internal API, and so forth. And they're trying to combine all that data. And that's been, that's been a perfect solution with GenStage for them. Don't know a lot of details, but it's really been a, a great way and they've been very happy with GenStage for solving that problem. That sounds like a great use case.
2: So since you've come from a Ruby background and even dealing with hardware, what has your experience been with the stability of the Elixir ecosystem, it just like the stability of the
1: projects, the code, or, or the, any, any of that? It's really been rock solid for me. I've had very few problems with it. And the one thing I've come to really appreciate about Elixir, and I guess it's functional programming in general, is the languages tend to be smaller. Well, one thing I like about Elixir, a new Elixir release, there's almost nothing new in it every time, which I, some people get upset. I mean, I think people that are coming from a JavaScript world are like, I need new stuff every time. I'm addicted to new stuff. But Elixir is like, the language is kind of done. We're just adding a few bells and whistles and we don't need that many. So we're not crazy about making the language more complex.
2: Yeah, that's been my experience as well. And and um, let's see, Jose Valim, he kind of talked about that at the latest uh, ElixirConf 2018 where he's basically saying that a lot of the exciting exploratory stuff is happening outside like GenStage, uh, how that is not part of the language itself. That is one of those uh, libraries in the ecosystem that's available. But that, that in, in many regards, Elixir is a very mature platform right now. And the, all of the experimentation stuff that may or may not ever come into Elixir, but that's like flourishing in the ecosystem.
1: Yeah, I think it's been really good that somehow Elixir has done that, not pull a ton of stuff in, but generally have not 10 ways of doing everything. I think it's a a sign of the maturity of the community that people haven't felt the need to go and reinvent something that's 10% different from something else just because they want to invent something. They've been happy to use what's there and contribute to that piece versus inventing something new. I found that really refreshing.
2: Yeah. And, and I do think that those libraries and parts of the system that are built with care and kind of consideration that they are very extensible. So like when you talk about like these libraries that are, that are built in other ecosystems because, oh, I just want to work like this a little bit different. It's like, well, these are very extensible pieces. You can just make it work that way with this one existing library. So I love that.
1: Yeah, for me, that's one of the real joys of diving into Elixir is if I do have a problem, I have very little fear of diving into source code. If I can't figure something out like these AWS libraries that aren't very well documented, diving into the source code, I can spend you know, 20 minutes in the source code and know exactly what I need. Documentation will be nice, but the fact that I can dive in there means it's okay. Where In you know, some Ruby libraries, are so heavily dependent upon metaprogramming, you can't dive in and figure something out in 15 minutes. You've got to understand much more context to make a small change than in this more functional world.
0: For you, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at lootcrate.com. Just enter the promo code Bridge Ten for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings... Star Wars and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, uh, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash Ruby. Again, that's loot slash Ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings.
3: Yeah, I, I agree a whole, whole lot there. Like you literally are just following functions. There's not some lurky state that changes something.
0: Well, and that was something that I ran into playing with Phoenix a bit was that there were certain things that were much more explicit. It felt a little more boilerplate in some ways. I don't think that's a word, but you all know what I mean. But at the same time, it was like, I know it's there because it's explicitly called out. And in other ways, it was, you know it was more explicit in the way that I had to declare things and, and put things together. And Ruby and Rails have a ton of magic in them.
1: Yeah, I think boilerplate gets a bad name. It's, you know, lines of code is one way of deciding what's good and what's bad. But if I write a little more code, but it's more explicit and I can still get away without repeating myself, I'm pretty happy with that extra code. I don't mind it.
3: Yeah. Being yeah. able to be explicit and concise at the same time is, is what makes it not feel
1: bad. Exactly.
0: Yeah, mostly what I ran into was, oh, import this module, import this other module. And I want to know those who are there, right? So that, you know, that that wasn't too much of a stretch. If it was, um, you have to go through all this ceremony to set up some controller action or some uh, function on a module or something like that, that's boilerplate that I don't feel like adds a lot. Yeah, but I mean, fun. When, when we're talking about explicitly saying, I'm using this, so bring it in or you know I'm, I'm doing this thing um and i don't want any hand wavy weird stuff to go on that i can't track you know the, the functional programming aspects of those are really nice
3: yeah i was gonna say fundamentally i really enjoyed monkey patching in ruby but uh getting out into a functional language i realized it was it, it's a band-aid over objects really like being able to look at a module and say hey this contains every possible path to any code i can run is pretty nice, rather than, well, maybe somebody in an initializer, uh, monkey patch null, to string.
1: Yeah, I think that's a common pattern. Ruby is really, really cool. You discover monkey patching, and you see the beauty of some of the stuff in Rails done with monkey patching, and you want to do it yourself. And then you usually regret 70% of that in two years when you look back at your old code. And now I'm much happier having to pass things in where I need them. I mean, one of the key Rails things is having you know your, your controller variables Available inside your views magically and that's kind of cool, but sometimes I'm looking at somebody else's code. I'm like it, how did that get there and I'd rather just pass in it explicitly like we do in the views in the Phoenix world and I, I did that for a bit with my rails code and uh, you know just passed the signs
3: rather than using uh, controller instance variables and people got really mad.
1: They just really did not like that. It wasn't normal. Yeah, that stuff goes well until you start making partials and then, you know, getting things into the partials becomes, you pass them into the partials, but they're they're automatic in the top level. And it becomes just a little bit confusing after time, where if you just explicitly pass everything down, life just seems so much more consistent to me.
2: Yes, I I will uh, attest to having done the same kind of thing with metaprogramming in in Ruby, then I come to Elixir and I'm like, I'm never doing that again. And then you know, I come into this project where one of the uh, developers uh, really enjoys using macros, and that was actually the first book he read on learning Elixir was the macro programming book, and and so it's been a, a challenge because like macros allow you to still create magic. And uh, recently, we had talked with um, Sasha Yurik, and on the podcast, and he cued me off to uh, this document he mentioned this, and this was the library guidelines. And in the anti-patterns section, I love it. It says, avoid macros. <laughs> and then it says, from the, to quote from the official guide on macros, and like just quoting the, uh, the last ending paragraph or the last sentence of it says, remember that explicit is better than implicit. Clear code is better than concise code. And I completely agree with that. And so, yes. And I feel like you can do that with Elixir. You can just by using a function and passing in an anonymous function as uh, an argument. So like it looks on Ruby a lot like a block. Uh, Just doing patterns like that. I can do a lot of stuff that feels like a macro, but I can totally follow it all. And there's no magic.
1: Yeah, that makes sense to me. I've actually never written a macro on my own. We did a a small amount of really controlled macro stuff on the MBTA, and I've worked with some of that code, and it was okay to work with. Nothing wrong with it, but you really should think twice before you dive into macros, because usually for your own intellectual curiosity, not because it makes better code.
3: I did something with macros one time to uh, sort of enforce return value types that uh, absolutely should have just been, hey, use Dialyzer.
2: So Bill, you'd mentioned, uh, we, pr- prior to the show, we were talking about Dialyzer a little bit. And so what are your feelings on Dialyzer? Like, is that a good thing, a bad thing? Where do you kind of feel? In, in concept, I love Dialyzer.
1: I am a big proponent of the Elm language. It's my first time really diving into a super strongly typed language and I love it. I think it's the wave of the future where we should be going. ooh. <laughs> and we use Dialyzer really heavily at the MBTA. And it's awesome in a way. It does find a lot of those problems you wouldn't find And the biggest thing I found at the MBTA where everything ran through Dialyzer was when I dove into legacy code, I had the types there. And the types were often really, really complex. And if I hadn't had those type definitions, it would have taken me hours to unwind. What is this function doing? What does it really return? So I found that Dialyzer really worked best because it enforced you actually putting your type specs in place.
3: One, one thing I wanted to mention about dialyzer, just because this is new to me. So I'm, I'm trying out VS code and anyone that knows me knows I'm a, I'm a Vim zealot. So this is a big deal. And uh, it does incremental dialyzer compilation. So it'll, it'll just check the module you've changed, which is like really fast and it's super nice. You can actually use dialyzer the way that you would use uh, TypeScript checks in the IDE, for instance. And it's just very good. And it even suggests like suggest specs. So you can just click to add a spec and then tweak it.
1: Oh nice. Yeah. The problem with dialyzer is of course the error messages. You know, trying to unwind the error message and see what's really wrong can take a lot of effort and time and be horribly frustrating.
3: And I yeah, think I'm the interesting thing though is if there's an error message, like there is a problem.
1: Exactly. And I, I tried to convince myself many many times, ah, probably not really a problem because I can't figure it out. And then eventually I'd figure it out. So on my current project, I started off like I'm going to go dialyzer front to back but this is kind of a different project than I'm used to. It's a startup. We're trying to get to an MVP very, very quickly. So about a month into the project, I stopped writing new specs, was still running Dialyzer because I thought I didn't have time. And then at some point I'm like, I haven't written a spec in a long time. Dialyzer hasn't found anything in a long time. Let's turn it off to make CI run faster. And of course, three weeks later, I have a 500 error on the server. I spent some time debugging it. And it turns out I was returning a different type from, you know, there was a if then else sort of thing with three possibility possible conditions. Two were returning one type, the third was returning a different type, the controller was expecting one of them and it blew up. And, you know, it was definitely a test problem on my part. I'd missed some tests, but Dialyzer would have caught that instantly. So I'm back to saying I should go back, turn Dialyzer back on and start filling in type specs because it will gain me something there's probably other time bombs in my code I don't know about that Dialyzer would find for me.
3: Yeah, you should. You should. I don't want to say you should, but I encourage people to check out uh, the VS Code Elixir LS plugin because it makes Dialyzer way more powerful. Just because it's actually fast. That's never been a thing I said about Dialyzer. Yeah,
1: I've never found Dialyzer bad because of the way it caches things. When I'm running from the command line, I find it runs pretty quickly most of the time on CI where there's nothing cached. It takes you know ten minutes on this fairly small project. But it is, speed was never the problem. It was always just when it fails, how do I debug these error messages? And I think part of that is being spoiled by Elm's error messages and expecting the world to be like that.
3: Yeah, well, the next release of Di Elixir also is going to have at least Elixir focused messages, or maybe it's the current release. Um, anyway, but there's an Elixir uh, output mode. Awesome. I'm looking good. forward to
1: that.
2: Yeah, It's uh. I, yeah. We, we had him on the... Uh, we talked about that on the previous episode. And... I played with it and I've used it. And yeah, so it's an RC right now. Um, But it's, uh, it's really been helpful because like the, there's an explain function uh, of the dialyzer where you can say, explain what this error means. And then it like gave me an example. It's like, Oh, okay. That's what it's talking about. I still didn't know how to fix it, but, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, it's like, so in some cases it's like, well, I know that's not actually a bad thing. So maybe I can just like tell it to ignore that one.
1: Yeah, I think using dialyzer or any type checker in general ends up encouraging you to write simpler code because you see a dialyzer error and you're like, oh, this could return nil or this or this or this. Why is it that complicated? What can I do to make it not return all those things and hopefully not include the nil possibility? So I think that's one of those things when you see things that are the type specs are that complicated, you're probably doing something wrong and you can probably clean things up and make a simpler type that encompasses all that. Yeah, I agree.
3: That's, that's the best result is when you look at your spec and you're like, no, no, this can't be
1: right. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think for me, coming from an Elm background where you have, you know, custom slash union types, you get used to thinking that way where a type doesn't have to be a bunch of primitives. It can be something higher level. And Even though you can't represent that in a simple way in Elixir, you can still think that way and say, here are the end possibilities. How do I make those possibilities as simple as possible?
2: I do like the idea of having Dialyzer actually be active. So like maybe not necessarily that it fails the CI build, but like it regularly is like showing you, you know, the problems of the code that's being submitted. Just because like I've totally run into the case where someone puts a spec on a function and it's a complete lie and I can see it, you know, it's like, I, no, I can see this thing is returning this or this or this and but they're saying it's just returning a keyword list. It's like, it just makes me angry. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I would love the day when Elixir when Dialyzer runs the way the OM compiler does. You can get feedback in seconds. So every time I save my file, I'm running Dialyzer. That would be my dream world. Where that is, it really
3: that is, is what that does for you.
1: It awesome. Really- I'm, I'm definitely
3: going to try that out.
2: Josh, how does it do it?
3: <laughs> uh, using the language server protocol and Elixir LS and also magic.
2: Lots of magic. What is Elixir LS?
3: it is a language server implementation for elixir but there is another one called like elixir sense but it's not it doesn't follow the language server protocol so language server is a protocol that microsoft introduced for processes to speak to an editor to re, so that we wouldn't have the problem of uh, you know it's best to edit typescript in this particular editor because its plugin is best right and so you build one language server that provides all the auto completion and introspection and documentation generation for symbols and code and then each editor just has a client for a language server. And then all of a sudden, you know, you build a language server and all the editors can support all the features you just made. And it's really good. And it's, uh, it is the probably best thing uh, that VS Code sort of introduced.
2: I've been accustomed to using Atom as an editor. Uh, how have you liked Visual Studio Code?
3: It's a fantastic IDE. And as an editor, it's probably pretty good. But Vim is the best editor of all time. Uh, in terms of text editing. And so, for instance, Vim mode, uh, (laughs) yeah, that's that's not fair, but uh, opinions. Um, Anyway, uh, but like in Vim mode, if I I move too fast, like it just, some commands don't get sent down to the Vim mode buffer or something. So like if I go to the beginning of a line in insert mode, then hit escape, and then hit a letter, I'll still be in insert mode when I hit the letter sometimes. And Mm. it's infuriating. But the extremely simplistic integration with uh, Elixir LS is uh, worth it for me on elixir projects and it's also fantastic on on flutter if you care about that sort of thing
2: i have played with flutter
0: yes it's,
3: it's really awesome
0: so i've been using it for ruby javascript and elixir and i've been super happy with it of course i used to be a hardcore emacs user and so the Emacs and the emacs bindings are pretty awesome so it, it's just because you get into the weird modes in vim that's why you have a problem josh
3: not even in a weird mode. It just doesn't <laughs> change modes. Yeah. Anyway, it's it, it only happens about 10% of the time, which is just enough to be infuriating. Uh,
0: I, I think it's definitely worth checking out, though. Um, it's it's definitely the editor I use nowadays because it, it has some of the power that I missed in an editor that I liked having automatically in an IDE. But the flip side of it was that um, it's it's all pretty low key and you're not overwhelmed with everything that's going on there and you can just pull in the plugins that you want so so bill what editor do you
2: favor
1: i'm a vim person i've been holding out on vs code although i see people who i never thought would switch from them to vs code doing it so i know it's legit and maybe someday i'll do it but st- still pretty hardcore tmux vim myself so
3: there is the language server integration in vim so uh if you play with it uh, i'd love to about it. You get all the Dialyzer goodies from VS Code's plugin, except for the incremental compilation.
1: Yeah, I haven't tried that yet. That's something worth trying.
3: Can you tell I've been nerding out about this stuff this week?
2: <laughs> you give me some stuff to play with too. Yeah, try
0: it. You'll like it. If you've been using Atom, I think there are there's an Atom plugin too. So if you're used to those key bindings, you can pull that in. Well, and Atom is built by GitHub, which is being
2: acquired by Microsoft. So I know. And now you have these two competing things, and they're both open uh, oh, I, I think Visual Studio Code is also open source. They're both open source, yep. Yes. So I, I, I kind of imagine that one of them is going to win out in the end. Um, I hate the name Visual Studio Code. It's a stupid name. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I should also mention, uh, if you do run VS Code, there's a, a version of it called VS Codium that's just like the Chromium versus co- uh, Chrome. Oh, nice. Setup. And so it's, it doesn't have the Microsoft telemetry. Like there's stuff in the binary that Microsoft releases that you just can't turn off. Um, it's not the open source release, precisely. So yeah, use, use VS Codium.
2: Nice tip. So Bill, I did have a coming back to uh, some of the other things we were going to talk about. I know you have some feelings on GraphQL. I also have feelings on GraphQL. What are yours?
1: It is true love in every sense. I haven't done anything production worthy with GraphQL yet, but I spent, you know, one day on vacation because I'm the kind of fun guy that plays with GraphQL on vacation when I'm up on a lake in Maine because I'm that crazy, and I was able to take the application I was working on, create a branch, and build out maybe you know f- maybe eighty percent of the API in GraphQL in half a day, and. I was like, wow, this is amazing because first I give capabilities to the front end people they don't have. They can cherry pick what fields they want. They can bring in, you know, hierarchies I didn't envision them bringing in. So it makes their life easier. And from the back end point of view, my controllers go away and my serializers go away and I'm building some fairly simple resolvers that are using functionality I've already built in my contexts. So... It's, it's one of those rare technologies that makes everyone's life easier. The front-end people consuming it, their life gets better. And me as a back-end person writing the code, my life gets easier. It seems like it's too good to be true.
2: I've really enjoyed it too. I've been helping a friend who's kind of newer to the development of a GraphQL system. And one of the problems he's kind of having is just the idea that, I don't know, you saw this with SOAP a lot, where if there's an error in a, say, a mutation, that it will return a 200- status code response still, but it will, the body of it will say, oh, there were errors. And I was kind of explaining to him, it's like, well, you know, with GraphQL, you can actually in one query statement or one post, you can say, run this mutation and this mutation and this mutation and run this query. And it'll give you all of those back. And you, but you know, one of them may fail, but the rest of them will return data. And so it is kind of like, you know, I I see that a lot that people kind of, that's their, uh, they get a little bit hung up on
1: that part. Yeah, i admit that's a side I haven't played with yet. I built out the query side, have not built out the mutation side. So I haven't had much experience there. But I just think, you know, I, I played years ago with the GraphQL interface that GitHub had built out and looked really encouraging, really cool. Always assumed it'll be really, really hard to build one of these things. Mm-hmm. But the absence library is just amazing. And having GraphQL there to help debug your queries as you write them is kind of otherworldly.
2: Oh, yeah. And then and it's, it, it makes it so you have a discoverable API where someone yeah. else on the team is building out some piece of an API. And I can just actually look at the schema in the GraphiQL, you know, graphical interface and kind of explore the schema. and say, Oh, these are the mutations I have available. Yeah. So I don't have to go dig into the code necessarily.
3: I was going to say also the docs are just never wrong. They can't ever be wrong about. <laughs> well, I mean, they could technically return the wrong thing, but like, no, they, the, the docs are right. And that's a huge problem. I just did a
1: horrible legacy API integration. The docs just lie everywhere. Yeah, I've been trying to get around that in my REST API by using Bureaucrat, which is kind of nice in that you just drive your tests into Bureaucrat, your controller-level tests, and they produce documentation. And it's decent documentation, a little bit, you know, it's, it's kind on of how good your tests are. And that's been useful, but it's just kind of verbose and hard to read versus when you can, like you said, explore GraphQL yourself and figure out just what you need versus looking at this giant piece of documentation and finding the one attribute you're looking for.
3: I feel like the GraphQL docs are composable in whatever sense that makes sense for docs.
0: (laughs) So I feel like we've talked about a whole bunch of things. What are you working on now, Bill, and what are you struggling with?
1: See, I'm working on this uh, TradeHounds tool and struggling with just bringing new stuff in almost every day. Today, my struggles change from day to day, none of them are horrible, none of them are super, super hard, but today I'm trying to learn how to send native notifications to a React Native application using Elixir and, you know, and using Elixir and the AWS SNS service. Nothing breathtaking, hard there, just a matter of slogging through it, figuring out what goes on and how to integrate it with your rest of your code. That's been the fun of this project is there's been a lot of new things for me, a lot of new AWS stuff, a lot of new deployment stuff, a lot of new technologies, and a pretty tight time schedule. So we're just kind of flying through things, getting things done, and uh, learning new new stuff along the way.
0: Uh, One of the questions I get asked a lot by a lot of people across the programming community is essentially, what do I learn next? So are you basically moving through these things as you need
1: them? Or are there other things that you're going after that... For the, most part, for the most part, I'm learning them as I need them. The one exception to that is GraphQL, GraphQL. I really wanted to use, learn, so I learned that on the side. And we'd actually, you know, had the intention of changing this project midstream to use GraphQL instead of REST, but then the schedule changed by a month and a half in the wrong direction, which made that goal go away. So we fin- we're continuing with REST, but I think we probably will eventually turn this thing into GraphQL, because I think it'll just clean up the code and the front end so much. Or for the most part, we you know just learn things as we go because none of them are sc- big, scary things, conceptual that we, know, we have no idea if we can do that. We have, for th- this case, we know we can send native notifications using Elixir. There's libraries out there. There's definitely proof of concept. So it's learning little things.
0: That makes sense. And, and generally, when people are asking me what they should learn, it's, yeah, well, go work on a project. <laughs> <and> <laughs> learn what you have to know in order to do it, right? And so if you're hearing about a technology that you want to use, yeah, pull it in and you're going to find that you need to learn a few other things at the same time.
1: Exactly. I try to learn things on side projects and it's successful. I learn little things, but side projects never get done. And I usually bail out before I get to the really hard stuff. So when you get a real project that has to be done under a schedule, you have to dive into that hard stuff and finish it.
0: Awesome. Anything else you all want to dive into? I think we've covered it. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks then. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section.
2: Mark, do you have some picks for us? Sure do. Kind of in the vein of deploying apps, one of the things that I use in my kind of development chain is a tool called DIR ENV. I'll drop a link. But it is a. it's available on Mac and Linux. And what it does is as I... In a terminal, as I change into a directory, it takes a dot a dot file that's in the folder and says, I'm going to load up your environment settings with these environment variables that you're setting should be set for this folder. And then as you change out of that folder, it unloads them. So it's really handy, like, especially when you're talking about Docker, building a releases and where you're loading a lot of things out of environment variables. So it's just I can just put these in an environment variable. And just as I change in the directory and start my Elixir app, it, everything has the correct values. And so I like that one, der env. And add that to your global git ignores. True.
3: <laughs> uh, Josh, what are your picks? All right, so I have one, and it's a super easy pick. I didn't have to think at all. So I mentioned Flutter earlier. Uh, so I was playing with Flutter for the first, well, for the like third time, but first real time this week. And there's a lot of stuff I you know miss from, say, Elm. But like even just the the type checking that it does gets me like forty percent of the way between like JavaScript and Elm, and it turns out that's a huge deal. Um, anyway, so like Flutter is a cross platform mobile app development uh, framework written in Dart from Google, and you can make you know native feeling Material or Apple uh, apps. And I've built mobile. I've built a fair number of mobile apps, and this is like with 24 hours of work on the thing, it looks better than, and, and is much more responsive than any other app I've built. Um, like it, it's as responsive as the native apps, but it uh, looks way better um, just because they package up the sort of core layout concepts for you. So like app bar and floating action button, for instance, on the Google side. And it's just really well thought out. It's all imperative and does very much the uh, sort of React-ish uh, push state down kind of, kind of workflow. And it's just really, really good. So if you're building mobile apps and you, you want to check something else out than React Native for cross-platform apps, I'd I try it.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I've heard a little bit about Flutter. I think React Native Radio did an episode about it. So fun stuff. Um, I'm going to jump in with a few picks here myself. So one of the picks that I have is a book that I've been reading. It's called Extreme Ownership, and it's by uh, Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. And yeah, they both have interesting names. Uh, they were both Navy SEALs and uh, basically led SEAL teams in uh, Iraq. And the thing that's interesting is they came back and they were thinking, okay, I'm going to retire. And then one or both of them had friends that essentially said, well, why don't you come speak about leadership to to my company? And that kept happening to them, right? So they did a session and, you know, a CEO of another company was there and, you know, on and on and on. So anyway, it wound up, uh, working out for them, so that they they started this uh, leadership training business, and they put all of their leadership lessons into a book called Extreme Ownership, and uh, this has made a huge difference for me. Uh, just over the last few days, as I've been listening to this, I have a team meeting every week with my uh, production team, and I just sat down and said, "Look, I haven't been good about you know ownership and responsibility on my end, and I haven't been very good about you know." Making sure that you take ownership and responsibility on your end, we're changing that, and it was interesting because they all responded positively to that, and so I think people want it from their leaders. you know you think that you know people can just get by on things, but uh, people take pride in what they do, and I feel like I wasn't giving them the opportunity to shine in the way that they could because of it so anyway if you're if you're in leadership of any kind in the company you're in, and sometimes leadership isn't you're the team lead, sometimes leadership is. You're just kind of the person that winds up taking the lead uh, under certain circumstances, right? You don't have an official role as a leader. But yeah, all of those things play into essentially um, how things work. And the other thing that's interesting about it is that of all the things that are going on, I mean, there may be extenuating circumstances to some of the things that don't work out the way that you want them to. But what I found is, at least in my case, um, I have put myself in the position to be under those extenuating circumstances when they occurred. I may not have been able to foresee them. I may not have been able to handle them at the, you know, uh, known how to handle them at the time. But it's, it's my responsibility ultimately to be able to handle those, uh, know what to do under those circumstances, and to prep my team to be able to do the same thing. So anyway, really, really enjoying that book. And yeah, I, I guess I'll just leave my pick there. Uh, Bill, do you have some picks for us?
1: Yeah, the first one is the new version of Distillery, the documentation. If you haven't, if you've deployed with Distillery in the past, read the new documentation. It's kind of amazing and how complete it is, how well structured it is, and how much really cool stuff Paul Schoenfelder has put in place to help you out, Uh, especially the area dealing with Docker. He gives a lot of information about how to build Docker images. And I think somewhere either in this documentation or elsewhere, there is really good information about how to automate deploys with AWS, which is something I have to get into using cloud formation and things like that. And he just covers a lot of that stuff, how it relates specifically to Elixir, which is really, really cool and something that I don't find out there for the most part.
2: I will second the quality of the docs and, and all, all the work that Paul has put into the new distillery release. Yeah, I think for the most part, I have to give a
1: big thumbs up to almost everything in the open source community that Dockyard does with him and Chris McCord. It's just really amazing amount of stuff to help the community and Dockyard's paying for it on on their dollar, which is really, really cool. We're lucky to have them around to help out with things like that.
0: Nice. Uh, Bill, if people want to find you online,
1: where do they go? Uh, You can probably find me best on Twitter. I'm at Bill Paragoy. And that's where I usually respond most quickly to things.
0: All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you for coming and talking to us. Thank you. It was fun. All right, folks, we will wrap this up and we will be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.